Welcome to the RH Podcast. We talk about business, software, and everything in between. Visit our website at www.recursive.house. Hello, Frederick. How are you doing? Doing well, and you? Very, very well. Very, very well. Very excited to have you on the podcast. Very excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. First, I'd like you to just introduce yourself a little bit, talk about your company and where you're from and things of that nature. So just let people know about you a little bit. Sure. I'm uh, Federico. I'm Italian and um, I've been living in a few countries, well, uh, all around Europe. Uh, I've been living in uh, Germany, in Ireland and France, and now I'm back uh, to Italy. And I started originally my business while I was in France uh, because I was uh, coming from Ireland where there are a lot of job opportunities for people in our line of work. And mm -hmm. I moved to France where job markets it's not as exciting as in Dublin. And also, <laughs> to be honest, I didn't speak much, much uh, French at the time. So when I moved to France, I started my own business. Uh, originally, it was just me. And then things went well. I moved back to Italy. I started uh, a small company. Now uh, we have Strumenta, which is this language engineering consulting company. So we are specializing yeah. this niche <laughs> area of uh, software engineering. That's a very interesting niche indeed. Could you talk about why you moved around a lot? Was it for school? Was it the nomad lifestyle that a lot of people are very interested in when they start entering into software? Originally, it was for my studies. I moved to, to Germany two times, once for my master, for a period during my master, and another time for a period during my PhD. Then I moved to Ireland because there were a lot of opportunities a lot of American companies have an office in Dublin. Mm. So I worked for TripAdvisor and then for Groupon while I was mm. there. And it was also an opportunity for me to improve my English. And then I moved I moved to France. Well, that's more difficult to understand why I did that. <laughs> well, food, uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe the food maybe was closer to home and I also... It's mm -hmm. a fascinating culture, but was definitely not work-related, let's say. Fair enough. That's a very interesting narrative. And then you said you started the company in France? Or... Yes, yes. Okay. Uh... So what gave you the impetus to even think about this? Because this, I think, and it is a very unique way to contribute to the market and the way you're doing it. Yeah, to be fully honest, when I started, I wasn't planning to focus on language engineering is something I studied during my PhD, but I wasn't yeah. sure there was enough of a market. So I just thought, okay, I will be more of a generalist. Maybe I will yeah. write web applications given yeah. I had uh, experience working in large companies on mm -hmm. web applications. But then I realized there was a lot of competition and clients in general and so interested in quality when it comes to generalist or at least I wasn't able <laughs> to find those clients and uh, on the other hand people started to contact me for these more specialized skills that I had because they were listed in, in my LinkedIn profile so mm -hmm. to my surprise <laughs> people asked me to work on that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and I enjoy the work more, was paid better and was easier for me to get. So, so you <laughs> so, just kept going. Yes. Yeah. I cannot say I was much of a businessman. I didn't plan anything. Just things <laughs> just happened. <laughs> that might be the best way to start to fall into an opportunity. So why yeah. not? For the people who don't know, what exactly does it mean to do language engineering? 
just to clarify what it is that you're doing. Yeah. We are specializing these technical skills that are related to building tools around languages. As a developer, you may be familiar with a lot of programming languages like Java, Python, C Sharp, and so on. Mm -hmm. And you need a lot of tools to work with these languages also in your daily life as a developer. So if, for example, you need an editor, an editor that has some intelligence, an editor that understand, for example, the syntax of your language that give you suggestion of what you can insert that point mm -hmm. out errors in your code. So these kind of tools are tools that you can build where how to process languages so you know how to build parsers, how to build mm -hmm. editors, how to build maybe compilers, so to, to actually execute the code. Mm -hmm. and then there are other tools that you may be less familiar with that, are, that requires very similar skills. For mm -hmm. example, of writing transpilers. So mm -hmm. sometimes you have code written in one language for any mm -hmm. sort of reason, maybe for historical reasons. Mm -hmm. And now you would like to have the same code in another language. Mm -hmm. And for example, this is frequently the case uh, with all systems that survive across the decades and now are written in very obsolete language. So it's very hard to find developers. It's very hard sometimes to find even the hardware that can run them. And so maybe you want to translate this old code to some uh, new programming language so it can run on newer hardware and mm -hmm. transpilers serve that purpose. Okay. Tools that have to do with being able to better edit and play with the code that has a little bit of intelligence, compilers, transpilers, that's the domain that your company deals with in terms of providing yes. value. Okay. Exactly. So I think the next part uh, is what kind of companies have you been working with so far? Because I feel this is quite, this takes quite a bit of understanding to see the value and do and go and like search for someone with your skill sets and with uh, a company with your really service provisioning. Yes. And this is not easy to answer because we are not doing a favor to ourselves by not specializing in serving a particular client, but instead specializing on a technical skill. So Indeed. we have this technical skill that can serve different purposes. Mm -hmm. I think there are two main purposes that we can use uh, our skills for. The first one is legacy modernization. Mm -hmm. This is related to transpiler, for example. Mm -hmm. And this is the situation in which some companies find themselves when they have code written in COBOL, RPG, SAS, PL1, these old languages. Mm -hmm. and, and now they need to, to move it to a new, mm -hmm. new platform. And this is a situation that is very common for valuable system. If you build something that is valuable and keep being valuable, eventually it will be written in some Absolutely. code yeah, that yeah. is uh, unmaintainable. So all people with that expertise in that language retire, the machines are not sold anymore, or maybe there are just so many less libraries or the language is less uh, effective. Modern languages are better to work with because, well, they took advantage of what we learn in mm -hmm. creating better languages. So you are much, much more productive if you can use a modern language that a language designed 40, 50 years ago. And we work sometimes with companies that directly own this old code and want us to help them uh, translate mm -hmm. to some other language or even write uh, an interpreter or a compiler for that uh, old language. Because sometimes it's not a matter of translating to a new language. It's just a matter of executing the code in that old language on a new machine. So maybe mm -hmm. you have code uh, 
that was written to run on some old uh, architecture. You want to run the same code uh, on your modern Intel processor. We just mm -hmm. write a new interpreter or a new compiler for this. Mm -hmm. But frequently it works with company that provide this service, this migration service, and they want our help to improve the tools they use to do the job. Mm -hmm. So you could be a company specializing in, I don't know, helping people migrate from SAS to Python. Mm -hmm. We can help you writing the tool that can automatize mm -hmm. much of your work, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and this is the first kind of client. Mm -hmm. Then we have the second kind of client. And these are companies that want us to design a language for them. And they typically want to do that to, to create a language that is domain specific and is specifically tailored for their needs. Mm -hmm. The most common scenario is for companies that are employing some kind of expert, for example, medical expert, a tax expert, some sort of engineer. And they build some software that require this expertise. And so they want a language so that this expert can directly use this language to capture their expertise. Mm -hmm. Because without this language, they have to do things in a traditional way. That means having the experts sit down with analysts and uh, explain what they need to analysts, analysts writing requirements then showing these requirements to developers that try to implement these things and then things don't work. So once developers have built the thing, they are able to show it to the expert and the expert can understand that this was not uh, what they needed. Mm -hmm. And it's a process that is difficult for various reasons. First of all, for some kind of experts, it's very difficult to think about all the corner cases, to imagine all the scenarios that they need to support, to, to formalize the way they think about the problem. So mm -hmm. it's very hard to collect requirements from mm -hmm. them. And also it's difficult for developers to understand these requirements because these experts are specialists in some other areas that developers mm. are not familiar with. So sometimes maybe you work with doctors and they give you requirements and then maybe, maybe I'm doing a, a stupid example, but maybe you wonder, okay, but the doctor didn't tell me what happens if, I don't know, the systolic pressure is higher than the asystolic. And then you ask the doctor and the doctor looks at you and say, no, but that is physically impossible. So why are you asking? Me? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I, I didn't invert the two kind of pressure, but I think you can understand what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes experts mm -hmm. have a very hard time to explain yeah. things in details because for, yeah. them, for them, those are obvious. Yeah. And so you have a lot of effort for the organization to basically handle the communication between the two parts and then you have to coordinate every change maybe you need to be revised by the specialist and they need to provide change requests and developers need to understand them and implement them and it can take a long time and be very painful and expensive mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I want to dive deeper into the old to new for just a short while, and then we'll talk about the uh, the DSLs for the specialists, which I think is very interesting on a personal level. So how do you work with people who are trying to transfer their old systems to a new new system? And by system, either it be a platform or they want to transfer the code and have a transpiler. Do you usually work with them to verify things or do you do they hand this over to you? What is the basically the, the life cycle of your engagement with your clients in terms of making that feasible? Uh, 
That's a good question because these kind of projects are not simple and they require a lot of different expertise. And uh, one point to consider is that while we are expert in uh, building tools for languages, each language comes with its own platform, its own runtime, and we cannot be necessarily expert with those. For example, if you need to migrate some old code that was written in RPG, a language mm. uh, created in 1959, so not exactly <laughs> the most modern of languages, they typically run uh, on a platform from IBM that used to be called AS400, now it was renamed IBMI, and it's a platform with their own specificities. And, I, I don't know <laughs> much of the libraries that are available there on how this architecture work. So typically we work with, with some other companies that could be the company that own the software. Mm -hmm. And this company typically have people that knows very well this architecture or with companies that uh, perform the migration for other companies so that provide the services. So in a way, these companies want to work with us so that we can build the tool. And then they use the tool and combine it with their services. So they use the tool to maybe do hmm. the part of the migration that can be automatized. That could be, I don't know, depending on the case between 80 and 95% of the code. Mm -hmm. And then they fix uh, manually the parts that cannot be automatically mm -hmm. translated. Mm -hmm. uh, because in this automatic translation, there is always, uh, you always need to find a compromise to make the capability of the old language fit into the capability of the new language. Otherwise you will need to emulate completely the original language. For example, on some platforms, they, you may have support for certain kind of numbers with certain ranges. Mm -hmm. While you may want to translate this language to Java where you can have primitives that support different ranges. Mm -hmm. And so you could create new types to represent languages with the same ranges you had on the original platform. But if you mm -hmm. do that, you will have terrible performances. So you mm -hmm. want instead to use the primitive available on Java, but then you need to, to consider that there will be cases uh, in, which, in which the difference in range could be a problem, could lead to overflow. And so you need to maybe identify those cases and treat them mm -hmm. differently. There, there are always problems like this, so that cover completely automatically the translation could be very difficult. So mm -hmm. it, normally in this case, uh, there is some part of manual work that is mm -hmm. needs to That's be performed. Okay. Uh, on our end, we like to work with fixed price. So we try to assess the problem mm -hmm. and provide a fixed price to build uh, an initial version of the transpiler. Mm -hmm. and deliver to the client, then typically the client starts using it. The client themselves, or if we work with this company providing services, they, they use it on behalf of, the, of their clients. Mm -hmm. And then there are typically iteration as we find more corner cases. Mm -hmm. Also because in reality, in this line of work, we don't start by reading the specification of the language and implement everything from start mm -hmm. to finish. Because these languages that evolve across many years end up being extremely complex and typically each client is using a, a certain subset of the language. Mm -hmm. And if we were trying to cover the whole language, the transpiler would be very expensive and in many cases doesn't make sense. So mm -hmm. we always we are always driven by the actual examples that we encounter. Mm -hmm. And as we encounter more examples, we improve incrementally this transpiler. Yeah. Okay. 
That's very interesting. So it can't be 100, but it can give you more than 50 and ideally 80 and 10 to 20% ends up being something that you have to grow into over time. Uh, and that's the client working with you to make that happen. As you work with uh, clients that work with clients or directly with clients who need the transponder. Yes, exactly. Okay. I think that this approach find the best compromise with keeping the cost of the transpiler reasonable because yeah. maybe it costs a certain amount to automatically translate the 80%. If you yeah. want us to build a transpiler that handle the remaining 20%, maybe will cost you 10 times more. Yeah, so that's fair. I have to be pragmatic. And <laughs> yeah. And that way, and then, but that, which also means you have to build per client, per their subset. So you can't keep and, and keep growing a company-based variation because that is just not cost-effective anyway. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. fair. That's very, okay. That's very fair. So then now we're going to move on to what I think is a very interesting part, part, you know, primarily because of how it interacts with the business side and what it does to reduce the complexity there. And, and I think that's something that's very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about creating DSLs, which is the sort of second kind of client and what it means to really have languages for non-technical specialists and seeing how that affects, affects the organization. Yes, I think it is something that has effects, uh, of course, on the technical level, adopting a DSL. But I think it's interesting also because it affects how an organization works and how the different kind of professionals interact. In a way, in a typical, uh, in a typical organization, when you build software, you have uh, software developers that are in charge, right? Mm. They, they are the one that actually build the artifacts that, that you sell or you use to, to provide value. And in a way, all the other professional have the purpose of serving developers and providing what they need to do the work. And as we were saying before, in many scenarios, we see that there are experts and those experts do not work directly with developers, but they work with analysts. And analysts are the people that are <laughs> very patient and able to sit with these experts and help them reason about the different, the different cases they need to cover. They put order in their way of thinking and they are able to ask the right questions and uh, solicit the answers until they have a sufficiently clear picture. Mm. But I think that what they are trying to do is extremely difficult because mm -hmm. in a way uh, they are trying to capture the whole complexity uh, of the requirements and write them uh, in large word documents, but they have no way to debug it. We as developers, we are we have the habit that we look at requirements. Maybe we try to maybe sometimes we spot immediately problems, but more frequently we try to implement these, and mm -hmm. then we realize it doesn't work because uh, at the moment that we try to write code, we we realize there is a conceptual problem, or mm -hmm. sometimes we are able to write the code, but then we realize that when it runs. It provides results different from what we suspected, and mm -hmm. sometimes the problem is in the requirements. Mm -hmm. And I think that we as developers, when this happened, we feel that we are very smart because we found out the problems, and the people that wrote the requirements are very stupid because they didn't notice the problem. But if we if we've tried to write our programs on paper and mm -hmm. we've if we try to write 300 pages of a program on paper and then try to, to type that 
on a compiler or in, in an editor, I'm pretty sure that uh, <laughs> we make some effort. Yeah, some error, yeah. Right? yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that experts and analysts basically not the tool, uh, not tools to verify they are correct. So mm-hmm. their work is extremely more difficult because of this. We are the only one that have the tools to verify that something is coherent, that something works, and uh, in a way we feel smarter and we f- and we are the only one that have access to these tools. So mm-hmm. we are in a way the one with the power of mm-hmm. doing these checks. So I think it also affects how we think about these experts because we are all always the one finding out the problems mm-hmm. on the other hand these experts are the one answering our questions and wondering why we don't understand what they're trying to explain so mm-hmm. i think that this kind of relation is not ideal for neither part involved and also, there is a lot of cost in uh, clarifying uh, this question, in coordinating, mm-hmm. and a lot of cost in communication. Mm-hmm. And it, of course, affects uh, the cost of building this kind of software. Mm-hmm. We've seen that uh, in certain domains, maybe there are domains that are very highly regulated, like medical software, this process is extremely complex and frustrating and maybe can take you even 18 months to deliver the first version of an application mm-hmm. and 18 months in which you have uh, experts and analysts and developers and testers also. <laughs> this is a whole other story. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, this is, this is extremely complex also because I think that the cost of correcting an error grow exponentially with the times that takes you to catch this error. If you mm. do an error in your editor, as you type it, your editor tell you, okay, no, you cannot do this because this variable has the wrong type, because you don't have this method, because this, this variable is not existing or is private that you cannot refer to it in this place. Mm. You type it, you see the error, you cancel, you delete and type something else and you fix mm. this error in three seconds. And so basically it costs you nothing. Mm. But if instead an expert uh, make an error in the requirements mm-hmm. and then you, you have the analyst spending hours writing down all the details about this requirement and the developer spending days trying to implement it Mm -hmm. until they realize that this is a conceptual problem and Mm -hmm. then they go back to the doctor maybe organize a meeting with the doctor Mm -hmm. and then you need to explain to the doctor why this doesn't work and this is not always obvious and then you finally have a correction for the requirements and you can go back and implement it correctly now (laughs) This error, instead of taking three seconds to be fixed, uh, has taken you maybe weeks of work. And mm-hmm. now it, it has cost you in the tens of thousands of dollars, depending mm-hmm. on how your organization works. So I think that if we can reduce the moment, uh, the time that it takes to identify errors, mm-hmm. we reduce a lot the cost of these errors. Mm-hmm. And this is where the DSLs come in the sense that they provide that formalization of the constraints that now, since it is debuggable, you can really save time because you can say, hey, this part of what you're trying to express does not fit the model for this specialization or this organization. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is exactly the point that with this higher level language specific for a way for a well-defined domain that could mm-hmm. be, for example, writing, a, I don't know, something related to insurance, writing the quotation or while the taxes or something like that. Yeah. Or taxes. Yeah. Then in these cases, you have this language that 
this, uh, the expert alone or the expert with the analyst can use, write some rules. Mm-hmm. As they write, the editor will point out errors. And uh, if the editor is not able to identify errors, they can still try to run a simulation or actually, mm-hmm. you know, play with the result immediately. Mm-hmm. So they can see that it works differently for what they expected, so they can go back and fix it very quickly. Mm-hmm. And by the way, given these are languages that are very specific, very limited in what mm-hmm. they can do and very high level, we can do checks uh, that we cannot typically do in uh, common pro- programming languages. Let's suppose that you're writing, for example, I don't know, uh, you're writing some piece of code in Java mm-hmm. or in Python to define some tax and you need to take in account uh, tax brackets, right? Mm-hmm. So there are things that you obviously want to enforce in this case. Mm-hmm. For example, you want to have tax brackets to cover what well, there are contiguous and cover all possible sections in, in yes. natural numbers, yeah. And typically you want to have rates that increase increase for each bracket. Mm-hmm. But if you try to write this code in Java, of course, uh, the Java compiler have no idea about those brackets, have no idea that uh, the second brackets should have uh, an higher rate than the first bracket, or in the worst case, the same rate as the first bracket. Mm-hmm. Because doesn't know about this concept. Mm-hmm. If you create instead a language just for defining taxes, mm-hmm. the editor will know about these rules and will mm-hmm. point them out immediately as you write this. Mm-hmm. And so we can have checks that are more specific, more more high level, more conceptual, mm-hmm. that the kind of errors uh, that your typical compiler can identify. So they provide more value than a typical compiler for a general purpose language. So I, I think this idea is really powerful because it, for obvious reasons in, in that you, know, you you have this tool that really will save you so much time because you just don't make mistakes before sent, things are sent off. I think that idea in and of itself, if nothing else has gotten from what has been said or what we've discussed, the idea you have immediate feedback for everyone who is partaking in your company with regards to what the expectations are for what they do, that is something most people would consider to be valuable. But I think the flip side of that to some degree is in order to make that real for their company, that means they would have to learn this new skill. And that's what it translates as. So could you talk a little bit about what it means to integrate this way of thinking into companies? I think this is... The, the most difficult challenge to win. Maybe the most difficult challenge is uh, to let people know that this is a possibility because I think um, many people don't think it's possible to create their own language. When they think about creating their own language, they just think, I don't need a new Java because they don't think about this, yeah. the possibility of creating specific language. But beside that, the most difficult challenge is... Uh, to convince people to embrace it because it for sure requires people to change their way of work. On one end, developers can be resistant to that because they think they are the ones that see less the problem because mm-hmm. in, from their point of view, they know how to build software. They know how to use Java, Python, C Sharp, say, okay, what's the problem? Well, I can write the software. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so they have an hard time understanding the problem mm-hmm. on one end and on the other end they have invested in learning certain technologies and maybe they want to preserve this investment so mm-hmm. if you are valued at a company because you know how to use I don't know the spring framework very well if I write an higher level language that will generate this part of spring code that we need mm-hmm. you may be not too happy because you say okay now what does what it mean do? uh, yeah. yeah am i going to be less valuable and 
what we noticed is that this is not the case. That there is mm. plenty of other work that uh, developers need to do on the infrastructure, <laughs> yeah. and then uh, companies that use this approach uh, uh, becomes much faster at developing products. And the result is that they want to build more products, and mm-hmm. so they need developers. Mm-hmm. But developers can be resistant to, to this for this reason, mm-hmm. and also experts can be resistant because they if you don't explain it well to them they can have the feeling that you want to make them developers and say okay i don't know i'm a tax consultant <laughs> why should i become a developer yeah and this is not the case it's just using some way to specify mm-hmm. their expertise so the most valuable things they are providing is their expertise and there is no change in that. Mm-hmm. We are just giving them a better tool to, to formalize this expertise. So instead of using mm-hmm. Word, we are... Giving uh, them something else, yeah. Yes, it's like we are giving them a super version of Word that is able to understand what you're writing and uh, give you, giving you suggestions on things that mm-hmm. you may want to revise in a way. Yeah, and testers also could be not too happy. And and I think they are the one that may have more reasons to be <laughs> worried because in reality, it's true that this kind of system reduce a lot of problems. We have worked with organizations that have, in certain cases were employing more testers than developers. In some cases, they realized they needed less testers. Mm. Maybe they still needed the very good testers, the ones that are very able to think about very strange corner cases mm-hmm. or very strange situations. And these were still valuable. But a lot of testers that were doing manual tests and looking were, were just able to look for trivial errors that we can automatically catch. Well, yeah. we need less of them, and this is yeah. sad for them, but this is a reality. But also, as the company scales the products that they can provide, they end up actually not only getting better testers, because the testers that they do get are people of higher quality, but they do need more, because there is more to provide. The back and forth the company has to have is much less on an individual issue. So the potential for that company to hire more people over time is definitely greater. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but I think in a way is the same challenge we have every time we automatize some trivial parts. Yeah. Yeah. And we make people that are less skilled. Have to upgrade their skills. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that this is one of the things I like about it. Actually, I'd like to maybe even quantify what it means to do this for your company so that people really understand the value of this. Because from what I'm saying, it's almost like it's, let's say, reduces costs by about 50% to be able to implement this, regardless of the pain of bringing it in, which doesn't seem that much. It's just really learning a new application, really, at the end of the day. And another part of it is that the people who are determining the way that this application is going to work those are the specialists so they have a very they they have a big hand in making this feasible the onboarding of that's something that they because they partake in it it shouldn't be as painful is that fair to say yes i will maybe i will make some comment on the numbers and first of all this is an approach that makes sense only for organization that build a specific kind of software all the time because there is an investment needed in building this stuff, these languages and the tooling around the languages. And there is a cost in adapting Mm -hmm. to use, adapting your organization to work with this. Mm -hmm. So I will not attempt this unless uh, you think that you can get more productive by a factor of at least uh, two and can be up to 20 times more productive in some cases. So if you, if in your case, Excel can make you 20, even 50% more productive, we will say, okay, don't build that. Mm-hmm. 
But there are cases in which we think instead that could make you five times more productive, 10 times more productive, and uh, then it's a no-brainer that you need the DSL. Okay, so the order of magnitude improvement is actually a bit more in order yes. to, value, to value this, but, but it will do it. Interesting. Yes. Okay, so if a company wanted to do this, what would be the best way to approach it? Is it leadership that has to come and talk about how much value this is? You know, what, what tier of the hierarchy is best to make sure that this actually results in success because it is such a transformational endeavor? Yes, exactly. So I think it's very important that it's someone high in the hierarchy that contact us or mm-hmm. is someone high in the hierarchy that is behind this project. Because at the very beginning, you could run into issues. So let's suppose that you, I don't know, project manager, you want to deliver your project and with traditional techniques, you will take this amount of time. You are familiar with all the issues that you can run into and work around for that. The first time we build this DSL that we require a lot of involvement from different team members. We could slow you down. The first time we give you, you, you build your first project with the DSL, we could find out that there are pieces that are missing in the language that we need to add in the language. And uh, so you may feel stress. And if you're, if the Waller organization is not uh, behind this idea is not able to understand that maybe for the first project you'll be slowed down because from the second project you will go faster mm-hmm. and so you are not for example going to take this in account when you are going to evaluate the work of this project manager you could get resistance from this mm-hmm. and uh, so in our experience it only works where you have the CTO of the company or someone leading a department of the mm-hmm. organization that is uh, fully behind this and uh, and we need to ensure that everyone provides the help we need to build this and mm-hmm. is willing to take the effort to to adapt to their way of work yeah yeah absolutely so what would you say and obviously this changes with company size but what was what was the uh, shortest and longest integration cycle for the applications you've built. And this is including the use of it and then the perfection of it within the hierarchy. And then you hit the point at the end where it actually causes acceleration. So that endpoint would be the point where everybody understands the value and now it causes acceleration. So what is the, what was the highest and lowest for in your experience, depending on the company and how they did it? And could you also talk about why it was faster for one versus the other? Okay. There are a lot of variations because some domains are easier, some uh, companies are more reactive. Some, so there is a lot of variation, but I will say that within a few weeks, we can have some prototypes so that, that the people can look at and start to get the idea. Mm-hmm. Then within a few months, we can have some some PC that actually works so they can start using for small application. Mm. And then this can keep evolving for a long time. And the reason why this happened is typically because people are happy with the results and keep evolving this. For example, in many situations, we started to say, okay, let's build a DSL for this aspect of the application. Mm. And then we build it, we deliver it. People start to get the idea and say, okay, but this thing worked. But what about this other aspect? So maybe what about a DSL for writing tests for mm. the same kind of thing that you have used uh, mm-hmm. before? And then maybe you want to add tools to this. For example, mm. this language uh, to, to define this medical application. Now you say, mm. okay, but maybe... I can add a tool to automatically generate part of the documentation that I need to provide. Mm. 
yeah, sure. So you build that. Mm -hmm. And then you say, okay, but maybe I can write a web simulator that I can share with, I don't know, prospects to to sell it better. Say, yeah, Mm -hmm. sure. And you keep adding pieces. And so Mm -hmm. when these projects are successful, they keep evolving. They Mm -hmm. keep evolving for many years so let's maybe i reframe it and say for a unit of utility what would be the life cycle for integration till to from uh, from zero to a successful point not in terms of the whole project just a unit of utility i think if a company is very reactive the domain is simple and so on Mm -hmm. we can have something that is in production in let's say three months best case that's very small yeah one year if it takes more than one year i will start to wonder if if the level of commitment is there yes and i understand it's difficult for companies to Mm. to change so Mm. personally i had great experience with companies that are between 30 and 500 employees because they are big enough that they have some resources so they're they're willing to do this investment Mm -hmm. but they are small enough that they can involve all the people that need to be involved and there are also companies that I think they feel they need a competitive advantage and the DSL can be a competitive advantage if you are as large as, uh, I don't know, Amazon, say, sure. you don't care to doing things better. <laughs> you will just yeah. crush your opponents in other ways. But if you are... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they also have DSLs, to be honest, as well. I'm, I'm pretty sure they definitely have someone doing something somewhere to make, uh, to make things easy for their experts. So yeah. as well, in terms of internal teams or something like that, too. But in terms of working with outside vendors and things of that nature, where you can really have a competitive advantage, first you have to have competitors and Amazon does not. So mm-hmm. 30 to 500, it makes sense that they want to do some acceleration. And in order to do that, they, a DSL can really provide value there. Yeah, maybe yeah. I phrased that poorly, but uh, I don't no, 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 <laughs> want to say anything. No. Amazon, of course. It's just no. that if you, are, if you have competitors that are much larger than you, maybe you can be more motivated in finding your secret weapon so that you can actually move forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so thank you so much for the information regarding the business side of it. I think this is really valuable. I think this is something that a lot of people should think about really bringing in because it's a very unique way of of winning in the business world. But I now want to switch over to the more techie side of it for people more like us and see one piece for each group, if we can. Seems and I, I think on one side of me, I really wanted to know how this is possible, which we've talked about. But I also want another side of me wants to know how this is possible in terms of how you build it. <laughs> how do you actually, what is your language? What, what language do you use to create languages? What tools do you use to create tools? What is this meta, meta solution space that, that most people don't really know about? There is an entire category of tools that are called language warpages, and you can think of them as a special ID that are intended for creating languages. Yes. And these are the kind of tools that you would use to create a domain-specific language, not the kind of tools that you will use for creating a general purpose language. If you are Microsoft and you want to create C Sharp and maybe Visual Studio, so I'm always thinking about designing the language and the tools supporting them. Mm-hmm. You can afford, of course, having custom solutions and uh, probably you will have very talented specialists working on these for a few years and you will have tens of them. And of course, if you're building a DSL, you cannot afford that kind uh, of investment. So yeah. you need tools that make it make it possible to create languages and editors for those languages so mm-hmm. you always want at least the editor in a quicker way in a way that is much much cheaper mm-hmm. and there are two language warbenches that i 
that I've used and I use uh, a lot in my work. And the two that I would recommend, one is called Xtext, and this is from Eclipse, and it is open source and it is free. And this is the one we recommend for creating textual languages. And mm. then there is a second one that is also open source and free. So <laughs> not trying to sell anything. <laughs> and this is called the Metaprogramming System from JetBrains. Mm. And this is a language workbench for creating as different kind of languages. And these languages are called or better, different kind of editors. These editors are called projectional editors. And this is very tricky to, un- yeah, <laughs> to explain. I'm, to, I'm waiting. Well, <laughs> yeah. the main difference, the main technical difference that has many consequences between projectional editors and textual editors is that textual editors save the same thing that you see on the screen. So you see a piece of text, if you open the file, mm-hmm. same piece of test has been saved on the file. Projectional editors work instead a little bit like graphical editors do. If you have a graphical editors to draw diagrams, you open your diagram in your editor, you see mm-hmm. a beautiful picture, but on this, we don't save the beautiful picture. We save mm-hmm. some sort of XML, mm-hmm. Your editor can interpret and draw the picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Projectional editor do the same thing. So, mm-hmm. if you have a projectional editor for a language uh, that have maybe I don't know an if statement, mm-hmm. it may save a file I don't know in JSON in XML that will specify okay there is an if statement and mm-hmm. maybe specify that if statement has this condition as these. Mm-hmm body have this else clause with this content and so on mm-hmm. why is this important is this important for a few reasons first reason it means that in your editor you can have something that looks like test but also mm-hmm. something that looks like a table or looks like some graphical notation because you can write editor that read, uh, I don't know, mathematical expression, a division, and instead of writing some test on the screen, maybe show that as a fraction, if Mm -hmm. it's more convenient for your user. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is one uh, thing. The other thing is that, uh, and this is very important when you design DSLs, they make much, much easier to change your language. Now, consider what you need to do if you want to change a textual language. So let's say that you have created your your language. In your language, in the first version, you have, I don't know, a while statement. And then you realize that you don't want a while statement. You want to change how it looks. And you want to change a little bit how it works and have a do while instead of a while statement. Not saying this is a smart idea, just an example. Fair enough. The problem is that uh, the people, your your user, have used the first version of the language, and now you have, uh, I don't know, 1,000 files where people have used the while statement. So Mm -hmm. if you now change your language, you break all the code that has been written with this language. Mm -hmm. With a projectional editor, instead... uh, you have the possibility uh, of doing a lot of changes in a way that is fully transparent for your user. So you can keep changing the language and this just work for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's just a projection at the end of the day. Exactly. So it's yeah. just many changes are just a matter of how things look like. So if yeah. I change, I don't know, if suppose that your while statement and the do while statement work in the same way, yeah. it's just a matter of where you write the condition and yeah. where you write do instead of while. Yeah, It's just you update the editor, will just open the exact same file and just show it differently. And this just yeah, works. It's not a problem. Can you talk a little bit about how that affects cross... Um, um, platform transferals for businesses. 
or in terms of the projection editors? This is also, I think, an important aspect for DSL in general, not only for okay for a projectional editor, but this is a, we were also talking about this with a client yesterday. So <laughs> let's suppose that you are writing some solution. I don't know in using .NET. Mm. Maybe you are taking advantage of some libraries that you have in .NET. 4.5, I guess, I'm not a .NET expert. Indeed. And now you want to change to a new version of .NET or maybe mm-hmm. to .NET Core. I hope I'm saying that right. And so now maybe you were using some feature of the previous platform that you don't have in the new one. And now you have a problem you need to adapt it. Mm-hmm. While if you are using... Uh, an higher level language like a DSL, typically you work on on the kind of concept that will remain valid 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Now, if I'm defining in my language tax brackets, this the same yeah. the same thing will be true even if I migrate to a new platform. Yeah, so non-business constraint. Or, or not, not business specified constraint rather. A business constraint is not specified by the business. So yes. it can't, it, it's hard for it to change. And this knowledge yeah. can be valuable for a long time. Mm-hmm. While in that long time, you can have many platforms that change. And an example that I like is from this client that I worked with many years ago while I was doing my PhD. They had a software for calculating taxes. Mm-hmm was a company that created their own DSL 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. They have this, uh, this DSL to define the different taxes, and then they were generate console application. So mm-hmm. uh, was a long time ago. So I have, they have this form in console application where you could insert yeah. values, navigate with your keyboards, and so on. Now, of course, after a while, <laughs> people didn't want to use console application. They wanted graphical application at some point. Yes, of course. Uh, so they were able to change the, the code generator attached mm-hmm. to their DSL. Mm-hmm. And instead of generating form for a console application, they were generated mm-hmm. for a graphical application. Mm-hmm. And by changing just the code generator, mm-hmm. all the logic they've written for the task calculation was still valid and working on a new platform. And 10 years after that, people didn't want graphical application anymore. People wanted web application. So again, mm-hmm. it was just a matter of changing the code generator and you were able to use the new platform. And I think this is very important because it helps you preserve the investment that is very valuable in this, mm-hmm. this very specific knowledge that you have and make it survive the technological changes Advancements. that you yeah. When you don't do that, you either you get stuck in some old platform, that is frequently the case, but it's not ideal, mm-hmm. or often you need to rewrite everything in the new platform, and this mm-hmm. is uh, a huge cost, but mm-hmm. it also stalls you while you are writing, rewriting everything. You are not able mm-hmm. maybe to deliver new feature. You are mm-hmm. not able... To, to build new products, you mm-hmm. just freeze your organization and sometimes freezing your organization for two years because you're doing this huge migration can mm-hmm. keep the company. No, absolutely. And I think being agile is really important these day, this day and age because for obvious reasons, technology accelerates very quickly. Being able to remain competitive, all of these things are going to be accelerated if you can move from platform to platform or even have a platform, just having anything that's platform agnostic is going to be an advantage. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I wanted to, to say thank you very much for being on the program. It's very, it's been very interesting to hear what you do, and what you're trying to do. And I, I would really like people to know where they can find you. So do you have, yeah, any sort of Twitter, any your website and you tell, talk about your company, Strumata. Is, uh-huh. is the company name, so just for those who don't know. So please just talk about where we, you can be found. Sure, I will answer that. But first of all, thank you for the invitation and thank you for the questions because it's, my pleasure. it's not 
easy to talk about these topics and I think you asked me very good questions and gave me the possibility to explain this and you. you got the sense of what I was trying to communicate so thank you okay. and uh, Yes, my company Instrumenta, that by the way means uh, tools in Latin, because I like to think that we build tools for the mind. And uh, so you can go to strumenta.com and find out about our company. And we have also have a community that is free and you can join if you want to learn more about language engineering. Mm -hmm. It's called Strumenta. Well, you can find it at strumenta.community, this new extension (laughs) that we have. You can also find on Twitter by looking for sure. yes and yes. LinkedIn. So we have not okay. much fantasy. So <laughs> the handle is always <laughs> instrumenta. And Consistency yeah. has value. You have a cl- you have cross platform in all kinds of ways, both in <laughs> yes. your in in how to discover you and and in how you uh, help companies. So I think that's logically consistent. Yes. Good. All right. Thank you so much and. Thanks for being on our program and uh, all the way from Italy. I'm in Canada. This, uh, I think all across the Atlantic Ocean and we're we'll be able to trade knowledge. And I think that's really amazing. That's what yes. computers have been able to do for us. So thank yeah, you so we're much. We're living exciting times. <laughs> exciting times. All right. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the RH podcast. Visit us at www.recursive.house we're a consulting company that help businesses build web and mobile applications. We also help businesses with digital transformation to move them into the digital age.